Well, I invite you to turn with me to that psalm, to Psalm 85. And uh, before we read it, let's once again bow our heads in prayer. Oh Lord, we would give all our attention to the Word of God this evening and uh, you would help me as I speak and all of us as we meditate on the significance of the words that you have written for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So Psalm 85. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you are favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation. And put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? That your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord. And grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back, uh, back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Well, over my years as a minister here in Solihull, there's a verse that every so often pops into my mind, um, especially when thinking about my own walk with God, or uh, maybe even as I, I think about the state of our church, and uh, you know, one of the anxieties that the Apostle Paul used to have was anxiety about the churches that he planted, and I think it's true of every minister and elder that you, you kind of live with a certain level of anxiety about the state of the church, and that's good and right, I think, um, because it causes us to to go to God. But the verse that I'm thinking of is uh, is verse 6. Will you not revive us again, O Lord? O God of our... uh, Sorry, I've lost it. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? And it's a reminder to us that uh, whatever we may seek to do in our personal walk with God, or whatever we may seek to do to encourage progress and development in the church. Ultimately at root, what we need is God to come and revive his people. And give life to his people. To quicken his people. Uh, and it's only God can do that. So we say, will you not come and quicken us? Will you not come... And enliven us, will you not come and revive us, O God? And so I think this psalm shows us that our continuing in faith 
and our continuing in faithfulness to God is completely dependent on God himself. And so our our response to that truth, especially when we perceive that perhaps we have lost something of of the mercies of God in our lives and the grace of God in our lives, is that we actually turn to God as the first, first thing. That we seek God's help to be restored to him. And that when we come in this uh, spirit of faith and repentance, God holds out for us this prospect of, of life and peace and fruitfulness uh, that's ours because of him. Now, there's little said about the circumstances of this psalm, uh, except that the psalm is uh, of the sons of Korah. Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 87, and we we did address this question of the sons of Korah, and who were they? And we noted that they may be a school of musicians and singers uh, who added to the the Psalter, who were operative perhaps around about the time of the exile, so much later than David, uh, but operative rounds about the time of the exile, maybe slightly later, maybe at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, you know, when some of the exiles were beginning to come back and were rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the walls around the city and the houses and so on. And one of the things that you notice about reading uh, those books, and you read Haggai and and not so much Zechariah, but Haggai, is that the people of God have this sense of something great in the generations before. And now they look at what they have when they're back in Jerusalem. And they say, they begin to question. You know, God says in Haggai chapter 2, he says, you know, does it look to you like nothing? And there's that sense of despondency that the people of God can have. Uh, because all is not perhaps as they, they want it to be. Uh, in their national life or in their spiritual life. And so the temptation in that situation is actually to turn away from God and give yourself to your panelled houses. Remember Haggai chapter 1. They they just gave themselves to building nice houses and they didn't bother too much with the the temple, for a while at least. And maybe that describes you this evening. You're despondent and you're discouraged Maybe you're thinking about that in your personal life. Or maybe you're thinking about it in our church. And, or maybe you're just thinking generally in the United Kingdom, the, the, the kind of desperate situation that the church seems to be in, in the United Kingdom. You know, it's not difficult to find something to be discouraged about if you're willing to look at it, you know. And I often say to folks, I'm a glass half empty kind of Scotsman. So uh, I always look at the bad things. I'm always discouraged (laughs) because I look at the wrong things. Maybe you're like that too. But what does the psalmist do here? And I think this is where we need to, to learn from Scripture and be trained by Scripture. What does the psalmist do here? Well, let me walk through this psalm. And I, you know, I have a confession to you. I started writing this sermon this week and, um, I, I, I was planning to divide it into four points, and I got to the end of the first one, and I had nearly taken up half an hour's worth of speaking. And I thought, this could really do with a, a whole... We're not going to do that tonight, but we're, this could really do with a whole series, actually. And maybe later in the year I'll come back to the psalm and break it up 
into more detail. But this evening, we're going to try and fit it all into one sermon. There's so much in this, this psalm. What's the, what does he do? Well, what's the first thing? And the first, uh, I've only got three things this evening. Um, so a couple of things are crushed into one issue. <laughs> what's the first thing? The first thing that psalmist does here is he remembers past mercies. He remembers past mercies. If you look at verses 1 to 3, you'll notice that the psalmist begins by listing a number of things that God did in the past. Uh, so you look at verse 1, and he says, you were favorable to your people. You were favorable to your people, past tense. Uh, you restored their fortunes. In the past, you restored their fortunes. And, you know, this is an expression of how God has, at one point in their past, has showered his blessings upon his people so that they are able to bask in the, uh, under the smile of their covenant God who has given them so much and restored to them so much. Or verse 2, uh, you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered their sin. So God has somehow, and maybe it's a bit obscure to, uh, to these believers, but somehow God does this. And they get an idea of it through the sacrificial system. But somehow God has dealt with their sins. You know, and they have that sense that their sins are all forgiven. And it's such an important thing that everybody needs, isn't it? That everybody needs forgiveness. That the many sins that we commit, uh, no matter how great uh, no matter how heinous they may be, however cringeworthy they may make us feel, that they can all be forgiven by this God. And the psalmist reflects on the fact that they had this sense of forgiveness under the smile of God. Or look at verse 3. You withdrew all your wrath. Uh, you turned from your hot anger. Uh, wrath is a tricky Words, you have to think carefully about it because he's not talking here about the, the ultimate judgment here, but rather he is speaking about uh, certain temporal expressions uh, time, you know, in time and history, ways in which God expresses his displeasure at the sinfulness of his people. And when you know who God is and how holy he is, when he comes face to face with sin as it were, he cannot but be wrathful. It's an expression of his, his holiness that he exercises his wrath towards uh, sin. And, uh, sin. And so how does that manifest itself? Well often it manifests itself in, if you look at Romans chapter 1 for example, God gives people's sin over to their sins. That actually God seems to just let them do their worst. And evil begins to abound around. And all kinds of things start going wrong. And families start breaking down. Read chapter 1 of Romans and you see the mess that, that ensues when God gives people over to their sins. And, and this is, I think, a, an expression of the wrath of God. So, so Paul says that the wrath of God uh, is present in all of these things. And this is what I think we need to understand here, that there was a time in Israel's history when that wrath of God was removed and they experienced not tough times and difficult times and all the problems of sin, but actually began to experience 
the blessing of God, forgiven sin and, and, and just wonderful fellowship with God, is, is in a sense his, his wrath was far from him. And, uh, and so that's the, um, the way that we're to read these things in the past tense. Because they're in the past tense, it raises the question, why is he putting it in the past tense? Is it because he's not experiencing that now? And that, that's the point. That as far as the psalmist is concerned, and all those who are singing with the psalmist, they're saying, we once knew all this. But now we don't seem to experience that any longer. Uh, that they, they don't experience the, those mercies of God in their lives. And it was great once, but now they just don't seem to have lost it. Now how does somebody get into that state where they, they begin to doubt the goodness of God and no longer see the, past mer- the mercies that they enjoyed in the past. Well, I think it is simply that the people of God fall into these habits of sinful practices, sinful habits and patterns of life that you take for granted. It can happen quite slowly. It can happen quite imperceptibly. You don't don't realize you're doing it. And you begin to be a little bit complacent about the things of God. This is what happened to Israel. They were restored to, uh, you know, under David, they came to the promised land and everything. But, you know, the graph of progress, spiritual progress of Israel is kind of more or less always downwards. And imperceptibly, step by step, tiny step by tiny step, the people of God seem to drift away from, from God. And this is what can happen to our lives. That we can become complacent, we can begin to neglect God. We become a bit complete, you know, lazy about the disciplines of the Christian life. You know, those disciplines of personal prayer, of Bible reading, of seeking God in His words, of neglecting meeting together, getting together, valuing getting together and meeting. We begin to neglect those things. And they may seem like small things at any one time. And each occasion of ill-discipline may not seem important in itself, but cumulatively, the pattern begins to get established in life. And what happens then? Well, it becomes a fertile ground. Your life becomes a fertile ground for sin. You're like weeds that start growing and taking over your life. And soon those sins become open habits the weeds grow, they grow and they grow and before you know it your life is just taken over with sin and sinful practices and by the grace of God you may get to the point where you suddenly wake up and you say what on earth have I been doing this is what I think the psalmist is doing now he's looking back in past days and he's looking at present day and he's saying what on earth has happened to us. And it all seems to have gone. And what can we do about this? Now notice, I want you to just notice something about a particular aspect of the past that 
uh, the psalmist is thinking about. He is not reflecting on past glories as such. Um, He is reflecting on past mercies. Uh, And I think reflecting on past mercies is a much more profound has a much more profound impact on, on the psalmist than simply reflecting on the glories of the past. That he's starting to think about his relationship to God and the sins that have crept in, and that is a profoundly affecting thing to do. Uh, and it's really important that we do this. Um, you know, some of us, I think, are old enough that we can sometimes look back on our Christian lives and we think of past glories of our experience, you know. I can, you know, Susan, I can, can remember past glories of the church we used to be part of in Glasgow. Hundreds of people gathering for worship, and it was great. And we, think, and we could say to ourselves, wouldn't it be great if we could restore those past glories and have them here in Solihull? That could be an attitude we could, we could adopt. And you begin to kind of dream a bit. Derek Kidner in his commentary on this psalm says something really interesting, uh, really caught my attention. He says, and he makes this point, Israel is not pining for past glories which are often an optical illusion but remembering past mercies. This is realistic, he says. It is also stimulating it leads to prayer rather than dreams. Now, what does he mean? Let me just tease that out a bit. You know, if, you, if you're always looking back, back to past glories, then all that happens is you start having dreams about the future and trying to make your dreams fit in with that, those past glories. In a sense, you kind of go back to the future. <laughs> and... But Kidner, you know, I remember when I was uh, starting out in this whole task of church planting back in the mid 2000s, and a lot there was a lot of talk and a lot of blogging and stuff and books out about church planting, and a, a lot of issues were one of the one of the kind of key elements that people seem to be saying is you need to have big dreams, you know, <laughs> if you're going to plant a church, have big dreams, and you have to cast these dreams out to the people, and they gather the dreams up, you know. And it excites people and, and so on. But Kidner is pointing out to us something really important. About, and the psalm is pointing out something to us. That what we really need is not thinking about past glories. But thinking about the past mercies of God in our lives. And when you think of the mercies of God, it makes you think about how you're relating to God. And how you should have fellowship with God. Not just having a great church, jazzy, kind of exciting church. But you actually seek God's face in all the midst of it. And that, that I think, gives us something of a diagnostic test for our own hearts. Um, The sign, I think, that we are responding spiritually to a seeming downturn in our spiritual lives. uh, or, Or the spiritual life of our church is whether or not we have that driving sense of need to then go and pray and reestablish that fellowship with God. You see, 
what you find is people who are affected by the past mercies of God have a greater volume of prayer and a greater intensity of prayer in their life. They see that there's nothing else that they can do except pray and seek God's face. Now, I find that challenging. Do you find that challenging? I could talk the whole sermon on that, that issue. But it's challenging, isn't it? And so the psalmist then does exactly that. He, he moves on to prayer. Reflecting on the past mercies of God, he then turns to prayer, things to pray about. And so secondly, of the three, he issues a call to God for his reviving power. He moves to prayer. He prays for a number of things here, and we'll, we'll look at some of them. Um, and I think verses 4 to 9 give us a kind of model, if you like, of things to pray for if you are down and you're reflecting on God's past mercies. What do you need to pray for now? And that's, that's really practical for us. And the first thing is restoration. He, he prays for restoration. What do you mean by restoration? Well, you know, when you restore something like, like a house or furniture or something, uh, you're seeking to to put back a kind of a past glory, aren't you? you know, you've got this run-down bit of furniture, and it used to be beautiful, and now it's all beat up and dented and everything. And you want to restore it. And, and you want it now to be beautiful, and you want it to be delightful. You want to look at it and think, oh, what a wonderful thing. Uh, whereas at the moment, you're looking at it and you're thinking, what a mess. What can you do with that? So I want to have that in my house. Um, but if I can restore it, I can... Use it and it brings delight. And this is what he thinks has happened to the people of Israel. They have become uh, drab and ugly. They have become damaged and broken by sinful neglect. And so he looks to God to restore them to what they once were. And that's what God is in the business of doing. When he saves people, He is in the business of restoring what was once lost. The image of God lost is being restored uh, by his saving grace. Uh, So 1 Peter chapter 5 expresses this. uh, And he puts it in the context of suffering, actually. He's talking about churches and Christians who are suffering. And he says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. God's in the business of restoring people uh, in his saving grace. And so our suffering, uh, which may come as a result of our sin and foolishness, those sufferings may be difficult, but God, in the midst of it, uses them to bring about restoration, to make us beautiful, to make us delightful to him. That's what he's doing to you and me, making us delightful to him. Maybe not to each other. It'll take longer, but you know, to God, he makes us delightful. What else? Well, secondly, he, uh, he the, the, the psalmist prays for the removal of God's indignation or, or turning away his anger. And of course, his, his anger at sin, he's angry at sin, and he's asking God, turn. Turn turn your anger away from us. Look kindly upon us. 
And he's asking the question, is it possible that your anger, which seems so manifest just now, uh, will it last forever? And of course the answer to that question is no, of course not. If you come to God, that's part of his purpose in difficult times, to, to draw you to God. In a sense, to bring us to our senses and then to train us in, in holiness and righteousness. And having found that right mind and that right heart, to come to him and seek God again. And when you do that, you find that God is God who smiles upon you. There's a, there's a great hymn we sing uh, by William Cow- Cooper. Cowper. Uh, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. And he's speaking about the providence of God. And one of the verses, I think the third verse, I think, he says, Judge not by feeble sense. So don't look at the world around and try and make, make sense of all of this. Your, your sense is feeble. Judge not by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a, a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. You know, behind it all, God is still smiling. But sometimes his providences look like he's frowning. An expression of his displeasure towards us. To bring us to our senses. And we've got to keep learning to trust him in the midst of the trials. And as you turn to him, you discover that smiling face upon you. Thirdly, uh, then he prays for a revival. Verse 6. In other words, he's praying for a a new injection of living power into our lives. Uh, And here's the thing. We cannot do this. We cannot uh, just say to ourselves, I need revival, so I'm going to revive myself. We can't do it. Uh, Some people think like that. Some people think, if I just try harder in the Christian life, um, or if the church just does the right things, then revival will come. You know, it's a big thing. It used to be a big thing in the United States, you know, to, we're having a revival here. (laughs) Churches would say, they put all the signs and everything, you know, people start coming. Uh, But you can't make God have a revival, you know. You can't just decide you're going to have a revival. Only God can give revival. Reviving power. And the point is that, you know, that, that's kind of a daft way of thinking. It's, it's like somebody who's fallen ill and collapsed on the floor and thinks he's, the answer is for him to revive himself. But you may be passed out or something. You can't do anything. You need help from outside. You need... I don't know, you need smelling salts, you need the glass of water, you need an injection or something. Something from somebody else outside of you to revive you. And so too with our spiritual lives. Only God can quicken us and give us that new life. Only God can open up the treasures of heaven and pour out his blessing upon us. And sometimes he does that. He does that to us as individuals sometimes. Or sometimes he pours out his mercy on whole communities and reviving power. And you can read the stories of God's great revivals in the past. But only God can do it. Only God can do it. So what do we do? The only thing we can do is to apply to God for it. To apply to God for it. To go to him in prayer. And say, will you not revive us? So that your people may rejoice in you. How we need revival. Are you thinking that this evening as you're looking at 
looking at me, you're maybe thinking about something else. Maybe that's an indication you need revival. <laughs> uh, not that you should necessarily always pay attention to me, but you should be paying attention to God, seeking His face, desiring His reviving power. You know, when you're indulging in sin, and you have got this habit in your life of sinful practice that maybe nobody else knows about, Things you look at on your phone or on your computer screen are ways of thinking about things that are just so sinful and nobody knows about it. But when you're in that habit of sin, there's little joy about it. You may get a hit of, of pleasure in sinning. You know, the thing about sin is it's, it's enjoyable for a moment. It's exciting. It seems to offer so much to you. But in the end, there's no joy. That apparent freedom to sin cannot produce true joy. And ultimately, it's always going to be disappointing. The effect of God's reviving power, however, is true rejoicing, true joy in the Lord. Isn't that something you want to experience? Isn't that something worth praying about as a church or as individuals? Well, there's more things that the psalmist says here, and I've got to move on. Um, He talks about seeing the love of God. Show me the love. Show me your love. And we need to be able to see it. And sometimes we lose sight of the love of God uh, because we stop looking in the right places. And we need God to redirect our gaze at all the right things, to see his saving works, to see his person, who he is, And how much he loves. And all he's done for us in his son Jesus Christ. And see his great love for us. Well there's so many more things that the psalmist goes on to say. But let me move on to the last section here. And here the last point is this. That the Lord will give what is good. The Lord will give what is good. Verses 10 to 13 shows us. Great expectations. For what God is going to do. That he will bring about something that is ultimately beautiful. And harmonious. And it all comes about because God is going to speak it. Uh, You see that in verse 8. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people. To his saints. And let them not turn back to folly. His word. Will make it happen. And look at the result. You just have to look at verse 10 and see this uh, harmony, the harmony of everything working together. Steadfast love and faithfulness, that kind of covenant commitments that God makes. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. It's like they come together. Righteousness and peace, they, they kiss each other. Um, You see, in a disordered world, in a world that is dominated by sin, where the actions of people are driven by sinful passions of human beings, what you end up with is disharmony all over the place. Uh, Alienation, disharmony. You feel alienation within yourself. You fall out with your family. Families fall out with neighbors. You know, uh, people have trouble at work. They can't do their work properly because they've always got trouble with people there. And, you know, everything's just such a cacophony of of mess. You know, when when you live a, a disharmonious life, when you live 
according to your sins in a disordered world. And you know, in that setting, love becomes merely a feeling, doesn't it, in this world? Uh, or faithfulness becomes uh, you know, erratic and unreliable. And everything begins to fall apart in this world. But when God acts, he brings all that disorder together in beautiful harmony. And so steadfast love and faithfulness meet righteousness and peace. They kiss each other. And there's a beauty about it. And everything begins to fit together. And that's what we begin to experience in the Christian life. As we're seeking God. When, you know, when we become Christians, we come to become Christians out of a world where our lives have been totally disordered. And a mess. A cacophonous mess. But over time, as we seek to grow in nearness to God, beautiful order begins to appear in our lives. And it begins to appear in the life of the church. As relationships are, uh, are developed and restored and everything becomes helpful and beautiful and harmonious. And that church then becomes a, an increasingly beautiful testimony to the rest of the world about the grace of God in, in our lives. And, uh, and that all happens because God acts and brings it about. But look how pervasive the, these benefits are. If you look at verse 11, it says, Below us, faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. So below us are good things, and above us are good things, so all around us are good things from God. The language here is quite fascinating, I think. Things springing up from the ground. It's like a, you know, he's talking about a desert. It's kind of barren and empty. And, and some, there are some deserts where um, that's what it's like most of the year. And then you get this shower of rain. And then for a few days, you get suddenly these blossoming of strange plants that appear out of the ground. <laughs> uh, and then they disappear again. But this is what the picture of, of God's blessing on his people. That out of nothing, out of the ground of nothing, the dust of the earth, comes this beautiful growth springing up from the ground. And that's what God does. Now, this, this idea of springing up from the ground, I, I don't know about you, but it kind of reminds me of another kind of springing up out of the ground. Um, literally springing up out of the ground on the day of the resurrection. You know, uh, I've often wondered... Um, I keep meaning to kind of look into this in more detail. I've often wondered if the, you know, in the Old Testament you have all these agricultural images of blessing, the blessing of God, that the fruit of the ground is a sign of the blessing of God, all the harvests and everything. Whether that is actually a prefiguring of that great harvest that Jesus speaks of that's yet to be gathered in, you know, the resurrection harvest. When you, when you read about things springing up out of the ground, I think it ought to remind us that we're going to spring up out of the ground by the grace of God in resurrected power. It's, uh, you know, so Jesus came first. 
came up out of the ground. And that same power that was in him is at work in us. And we've begun to experience it inwardly and outwardly where we'll see it in the resurrection of our bodies. Or the righteousness, so that's the thing spring up from the ground. But the righteousness that comes from above. Obviously not our righteousness, but God's righteousness coming down to us and given to us. And so it prefigures the saving work of Jesus Christ. Through him the righteousness of God comes to us. This is all what Jesus came to do for us. To bring peace, the shalom of God. To grant repentance that we turn away from folly. To bring salvation. To bring beautiful harmony. To give life and rightness with God where all our sins are removed. And so he says in verse 12, yes, God the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Friends, as we finish, is your life at a low ebb spiritually? Do you look at your life and do you think all is not as it should be? You think to yourself, I once knew the mercies of God, but now I'm not so sure. Well, let's turn to him. Let's pray for revival and restoration. Let's pray for a renewed sight of his love. Let's come to him in prayer. Express your longing for the peace of God. Express your longing to be free of all folly. Your longing to know his nearness in your life. To experience his glory. And for the Lord to do good in your life. And in the life of our church. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, would you, will you not revive us? Will you not come to us in great power? Father, we look at our own lives and we confess that all is not as it should be. That we are people perhaps who have drifted grievously from you. Maybe some of us don't feel it's so grievous, but Lord, would you revive us? Whatever state we're in, come amongst us, we pray. Thank you for all that you've done for us in the past, the mercies that you've shown to us. Oh Lord, we cry out to you. We need you in our lives. We need you in our church's life. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.